Marco on the normal radio. Free weed. Free weed. Oh, yo. Danny Danko come to show you how it grows. You're now tuned in to Free Weed from Danny Danko on normal radio. Presented by High Times Magazine. See me, I say, boom, bang. Big respect. See me, I say, Danny Danko. All right, welcome to episode number 82 of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Denko and Mike Hughes. And Mike, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. This is nice. We're back with another Free Weed. Yes, we are. And this one is a panel show. I know people enjoy the panel shows. Um, this is from the panel that we did on 420 in Denver at uh, the Denver Mart. And yeah, who, who's on this panel? I already forgot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is the 420 panel. You had uh, you had the gentleman who had your job before you had it. So Kyle Cushman. Kyle Cushman. Yeah. You got a uh, Mark January. Mark January from High Country Healing. Uh, I'll let you guess. Half of DNA was there. Don from DNA Genetics. That's right. Uh, the gentleman who has a competing uh, marijuana podcast. Oh, uh, Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn and Mitch Shinasa from the Adam Dunn Show. They were both there, but although they did show up uh, a little bit late, but so they they're not in at the beginning of the show, but they do come in uh, sometime after the beginning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, there is Goldfinger. Oh, Mr. David Bond villain. Bond villain. All right. So that's <laughs> David from Elite Cannabis. Yes, that is the panel. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, yeah, we got a new issue out, which is our August issue, oddly enough, out in June. <laughs> but I guess that's how magazines work. And people are tripping on this cover. We have Obama Obama with a bong on the cover. Uh, red, white, and blue bong. A nice packed bowl. Looks pretty good. Thumbs up from Obama. Legalize now. You know, a little and backstory there. We, we originally wanted to do this Right when he got elected, right? Yeah, yeah, but uh, we held off, and, you know, I think the time is right. Uh, there's an article in here by Russ Belleville, basically about uh, the legalization movement, past, present, and future. And so, yeah, we just want to put pressure on him because he does, he can make an executive order that uh, does reschedule cannabis. So we're hoping that he does, and uh, this is kind of our gentle nudging way of, <laughs> of letting him know that that's what we think uh, he should do. Um Incredible interview in here um, by Editor-in-Chief Dan Skye with Susan Sarandon, which I, I was just amazed. She's You're a big fan. I'm a big fan. She's an amazing woman. Did you get amazing. to meet her at our uh, 40th anniversary party? Yeah. I did. I've met her a few times, and she's always been very nice and gracious, and she's a, definitely a, a fan of the ganj, you know, a friend of the halfling's leaf, <laughs> so to speak. She's And she's outspoken about it. You know, a lot of people in Hollywood smoke weed. Most of them do. But not a lot of them will come out and do a High Times interview, and yeah. particularly Oscar winners. I think she's an Oscar winner, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah she won. Sure. Um, what, Thelma and Louise or Dead Man Walking? I think something. Dead Man Walking, yeah. maybe, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so Susie, um, she's amazing. And lest we forget, she was also in Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> yeah, that's a good <laughs> and one. And a couple of great baseball films as yeah, well. Yeah, Bull Durham. Yeah. Um, so that's the interview, which is amazing. Um Drew West, who we've had on the show uh, a number of times and on panels, uh, the author of Secrets of the West Coast Masters, uh, has an article in here about his greenhouses in Oregon, uh, his greenhouse and his unique way of growing these big, massive plants in the greenhouse. 
Um, very interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, there's some science behind it as well. So check that out for sure. That's in the issue. Our Denver coverage of the Denver Cup is in there uh, by Miss Mary Jane Gibson. Uh, great story on hemp. Well, that's kind of a trip. So the Denver Cup coverage is in this one, and the panel we're about to play is from the Denver Cup. Yeah. Wow. Whoa. So we're just really behind on this, Kiss I guess. It. Yeah, I guess we're yeah. behind. But uh, yeah, and also a great article by uh, Dan Sky about Colorado cannabis companies with uh, with a bunch of different companies f- uh, featured there um, with legitimate jobs you can get in the cannabis industry, which is pretty interesting and exciting. So. Um, that's the August issue of High Times. Of course, um, we're gearing up for Cannabis Cup in San Francisco. If you're interested in tickets for that, please go to CannabisCup.com. Uh, Steel Pulse is performing, a wonderful reggae group that's been around for many, many years. And uh, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff. There's, well, uh, you're doing a lot of stuff. You're doing like some VIP activities, right? Yeah, you're going to yeah. teach if people get, how to roll? Yeah, if you get the VIP tickets, uh, there's all kinds of meet and greets and and. We'll be playing ping pong in the VIP area and signing things and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, doing dabs, smoking joints. And perhaps the, maybe the most exciting thing about this entire cup, uh, you are going to do a free hash. Yeah, yeah. We have a cultivation panel, which we're going to turn into uh, a the second uh, sophomore episode of free hash so uh we will be doing free hash and that'll be on a future episode as well so if you don't make it to the cup uh you'll at least be able to hear that um on a future free weed show um the expo is amazing uh we've got like almost 400 vendors right now which is pretty insane um competition is going to be announced on sunday uh the 26th or no 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 uh, <laughs> sunday the 21st 21st right so it's the 20th and the 21st of june and uh very excited about that it's going to be fun um it's going to be a big party so please make it out for that um sunday is when we announce the best weed and hash um always very exciting and so that's the cup coming up and uh speaking of cups we have this panel from the previous cup in denver so uh and keep in mind it was 420 it was on 420, and it was around 420 as well. So, um, And also, you know, the sound quality isn't the greatest. And uh, so, um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bear with us a little bit. Bear with us. The grow info is top-notch, as always. Yeah, and we'll be back with uh, recorded, well, well-recorded shows, uh, you know, in the future. But we wanted to get this information out there. So even though the sound quality is not so great, there's a lot of incredible information being uh, shared. So hopefully... Uh, you guys can look past the audio uh, difficulties and enjoy the show and the panel and all of the interesting stuff that people asked at the end and everything. So, yeah, with uh, without further ado, um, let's get right right into that panel. Rate and uh, you know what your practice is and how you do that. 
right, please uh, start. Um, has anybody in your German agency before? Who has? Does anybody want to? Well, it's real simple. There's seeds right up back here, a lot of seed companies, and they can pick them up, and they, we can start this process probably tonight when you get home. So what you want to do is you want to get a Ziploc bag, at least this is how we do. And uh, there's lots of different ways you can do it. But the way we prefer to do it is we, we grab just a good old Ziploc bag, we moisten a paper towel a little bit. You don't want to like, just flood it with water, you just want it lightly moistened. We'll take a few seeds, half a dozen or so, we'll spread them out inside a Ziploc bag with our moistened paper towel. We'll set it in, say, a dark cabinet or a closet or just some dark room, we'll take a tack, we'll tack the Ziploc bag to the wall so gravity actually pulls the roots downward and doesn't let the, the roots just spiral all over the place trying to find which way to shove her down. And uh, that's just one trick of the trade that we do. That's one of the most simple ways that you can germinate a seed. Um, um, we close the bag. And uh, you keep the moisture in there within pretty much 24 to 48 hours, you're going to see roots pop. This is a very delicate stage. You want to take those little seedlings that you're going to have to transplant them either into whatever medium you choose, soil, starter juice. You want to lightly take those roots and just place them down in there. Now you've got this little seedling that's starting. And that's a discoloration to it. It's not actually grass. You need to trust that. It's okay. Just put it in a real low light or keep it in kind of the dark for a while. Eventually the green and everything will start to come around with that plant after a few days. It might take a little while, but you're going to have to really watch that stage. Ziploc bag, moist paper towel, put the seeds in there, take a tack, post it to the wall in a closet or a dark room or a cabinet. You don't have roots very, very soon. That's how I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I like that Ziploc bag. Um, yeah, the only difference is, uh, like you said, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I throw it in a little cup of water, the seeds first, and I tap on them within the first hour. It seems like the ones that sink are going to be the ones that are good. And then within 12 to, 40, uh, 12 to 24 hours, they've cracked and they've got a nice little tiny, tiny white. And I do exactly what he said. Fold them in a little damn paper towel and zip up back and I cover it on just the texture. <laughs> and uh, yeah, plant them down. And uh, one thing people do, I find people like to do, is they try to feed their seed right away. So they'll talk to their garden center, one of their friends, and they'll tell them to do something that's super dry or something. And water, don't, I, I wouldn't put anything except just you know, water on the seed. Well, I, I just I just wanted to add something that, um, uh, like Don said, uh, putting soaking them overnight in water is a really good uh, uh, thing for seeds that may not be quite so fresh. So before you put them either on a paper towel or in a bag, you want to soak them overnight. And me, I like to put just like a fleck or two of seaweed in there, just to call it a warm purple, because that seaweed has uh, hundreds of essential micronutrients. And so, you know, it can't hurt. So just a couple of little little flecks of the soluble seaweed in there, stir them around with your finger, like you said. And if you do that a couple of times, you'll generally see that the ones that sink are going to be alive and they'll float. And then I just want to add what we mentioned about planting those seeds, you know. It's really important. Um, the depth that would be 
which plant those seeds. So, um, like Mark was saying, you know, they're very delicate. You want to handle them very delicately. Um, and you want to take that taproot, of course, you want to plant it downwards. That's pretty obvious. Um, what I like to say is, so you dig yourself a little tiny hole about the, the distance of your first joint on your, on your pointer finger there. That's how far you want to push it down. So I'll put the seed down in there, and then I just take my finger and I just, I just scrape the dirt over. I don't even cover it, I don't push it. Just cover it, just very, very lightly, and it'll generally come up. Sometimes it even pushes itself out, and then you have to push yourself down a little bit. But you don't want to plant it too deep, because uh, sometimes it won't come up. EJ? Yeah, I've been researching this uh, recently uh, because I do have some very old seeds that I need to work with and I've had low sprout rates with them. And what I've been coming up with, and I don't have first-hand experience with this, but I will within a couple months, uh, two things, gibberellic acid and um, legume water. Any bean or pea, if you have dried beans and you soak the beans, you take that water that you use to soak the beans and soak your seeds in that. Or a solution with what I'm reading right now working best is about 100 ppm of gibberellic acid to uh, it's a very low uh, amount. But what that does is re-stimulates that dormant germ in the seed, and people are having much greater successes with old seeds using these methods. Very interesting. And what I found also, and Kyle touched on this, is that the taproot is similar in a lot of ways to your main branch up above ground in that if you suppress that branch then you allow other branches you know the, the, it stops becoming the dominant branch when you chop it and the other branches sort of come up you go from a christmas tree profile to like a bush profile and it's similar with the roots but it's, it's not wise to damage the taproot in any way so it's the most important when once it reaches the bottom of the container and starts sort of swirling around it's sending a message back to the plant above it that hey, we've reached our capacity, and we can sort of stop, you know, stretching, and start just sort of focusing our energy on staying short and bushy. And it's an interesting thing that you kind of experiment with the manipulation of the depth of your containers and the width of your containers in order to get certain size plants. So now we're now we have our seedlings and they're growing. They're in their vegetative stage. I wanted to uh, ask. Kyle, to talk a little bit about uh, veganics, because a lot of people have some confusion about this. Um, organic, veganic, uh, chemical nutrients, what's, what's the difference and, and what makes uh, veganics cleaner or better? Or? Well, you know, um, chemicals work really well. Chemical drugs work really well, that's why I'm really so addicted to them. Chemical fertilizers work really well, that's why they became so popular. But um, after uh, the agricultural revolution, we discovered what, how badly we were poisoning our soil with these uh, residues that are left over. So chemicals out of question. Now organics is a wonderful method of cultivation. I've been organic for 25 years. And uh, outdoors, you simply can't really outdo organics. Um, by kind of spearheading this movement for organics, I'm, I'm more uh, focusing on what happens when you take a plant and put it in a confined space, in a bucket indoors, to say, for example, and, um, and you put excrement into that bucket, and uh, you're inevitably going to have residues left over. 
So when the plants are done removing the nutrition from these excrements, uh, you have residue. Whereas, uh, by comparison, organic nutrition, once the plant removes the nutrition from the product, you're left with nothing but complex carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates, in turn, feed your beneficial organisms, and you're left with a soil with the lowest levels of salts and heavy metals. So it's about cleanliness. Um, and then, you know, again with cleanliness on the other side is that, uh, you know, if you're sourcing your organic amendments from locally, and you know they're coming from an organic farm, that's a wonderful thing, but if you're buying bags of guanos from a global corporation, well, these global corporations um, and these islands where these things come from may not be quite as clean as they used to be. So um, animal products and slaughterhouse products are now loaded with uh, antibiotics and hormones and pesticides and these things, so it's just a, a cleaner way of feeding your plants. And, um, and the, the nutrition is also uh, much more easily assimilated uh, because it doesn't rely on any form of uh, decomposition. You don't need anything to be chelated. Uh, everything is uh, virtually 100% uh, bioavailable. Kind of like feeding your plants the way a forest thrives, just through decomposition and simply um, to speed that up through refinement and uh, processes. So, you know, uh, I think that we'll all have an opportunity to buy veganic produce in the supermarkets in the next few years. I think that um, veganics is actually the evolution of organic horticulture. All right, interesting. Um, so, question for Don. Um, you've obviously won a lot of campus steps. So assuming someone starts with great genetics, let's say they got a 10-pack of kosher kush and they want to grow some cannabis of winning quality, but they have the genes, what, what are the stumbling blocks and what is your advice to them for, for getting them the best out of those, those seeds? Uh, well, if, the, if they're not really experienced, I think the, the common mistake people make is they have four friends that have grown and they're looking for advice and they ask for all four. And then <laughs> so then you get four different versions of maybe the same thing or maybe totally different. And that's what they struggle. So I think in the beginning I would just pick one person or book or source and go for it. And then obviously there's genetics and everything else. But I think people are misled by direction. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that. A lot of times I get this sort of general question of just, how do I grow the best possible way? And the truth is, there's hundreds of different ways to grow, but if once you choose a certain route, you have to then have every link in that chain. You know, so if you choose hydroponics, well, make sure you control the temperature of your water and the oxygenation of the water, and all the factors for that specific type of growing. But no one thing basically trumps everything else. No, no, no. I mean, the basic principles remain the same. I think it comes down to the room or the space for the greenhouse or the facility. If you've dialed in your space, then you're going to be able to have the best setup, the best results. So a lot of people struggle from, you know, they think they're bad growers, but they're really in a situation where they don't have the right tools or they don't have the setup properly. And so you're struggling because of that. You're bucks, you're having more, you're doing all these problems with heat different issues, but it has nothing to do with you growing, it has to do with your setup. So there's some fundamental principles that, you know, a lot of times people think that they're not doing it right. Right, and I find that people, when they're making that sort of grow budget, 
they put the money into lighting and they put money into certain, you know, that's where the expenses are, but environmental control isn't necessarily up there on the list, whereas it really should be. And once they do put in that lighting, they realize that after the fact that the heat that's generated needs to be pumped out and cool, fresh air needs to be pumped in. Totally. I mean, a lot of times, most people, in my situation when I was first starting to grow, is you don't have this endless budget. I mean, now people are getting funding and all these things, and it's crazy. But back in the day, you had three grand. You know what I mean? <laughs> you had you, you got what you could get with your three grand, and then as you cropped, you got bigger and bigger, and you were able to learn. But yeah. You know, it, it's so a lot of times it's not really what you use, it's how you use it. So uh, there's many ways to cultivate it that are cultivated. Yes, is not uh, the best way for everyone. You have to pick a style of growing that fits your lifestyle, and then you want to master that. You know, or at least do that for a year before you take advice from another person, and then add a different product to your regimen. You know, because they all work. The reason why they're all on the shelves, they're all making this, they all work. You know, they create different levels of product, and, and they, you know, it's about. Picking up something, picking a road, and falling to the end, and you can say, I've done this properly. And then you Absolutely. Um, so, I, want to, I have a question for DJ Short, and forgive me if you guys have seen the seminar before and you, you've heard this, but uh, we've all been taught for decades now that you know you bet your plants and then you switch to 12 12 for flowering. That's just kind of written in stone. And the truth is that there are alternatives. And DJ has a very interesting alternative, and he's going to explain a little bit about that, why to do it, and what the benefits are. Sure, it's very simple. Uh, it's the 11 on, 13 off flower cycle. I've been using this since the early 80s. It came to me uh, via my elders uh, back in the day who suggested keeping the night cycle a bit longer. Um, the main reason I do this is because under this regimen you will see phenotypic expressions that you will not see with the 12-12. So you'll get some little greater variation and that one stellar plant um, will be more likely to stand out for you. It also uh, theoretically increases production because plants take in food during the day and a plant's main source of food is light, all right? These other things we add to it are supplements, like we eat uh, uh, vitamins to help us metabolize our protein. Uh, plant's main source of food is light, so it takes in the food during the day and it puts that fiber on at night. Giving it a little longer night period allows it to uh, stretch a little bit more, to grow out a little bit more. Um, it doesn't really affect flowering time at all, uh, and this is, again, this is, we're tweaking our environmental um, factors to see different phenotypic reactions. Coupled in with this is the type of light. And, and one of the rules of thumbs I've been seeing over the years in terms of the final few weeks in flower is that blue highlights tend to bring out the sweet and the sodiums tend to bring out more of a sour. I prefer the sweet myself, so I tend to lean towards the blue highlights um, in flower. Again, this is primarily important uh, the last few weeks in flower. That's when we're producing most of the resin that we're going to be uh, consuming. But uh, 
been passing this out. I'm kind of amazed too at how fast this has uh, taken off. You know, there's a lot of people apparently uh, uh, watching uh, this particular show and listening in, and I'm, I'm getting feedback back from people. And I, I've said for years, I said, hear me now, thank me later. And, and the thank yous are coming back, so just take that with a grain of salt. I want to I want to specify a little bit. So you didn't one thing you did not address is so are you saying that your yield won't be affected by reducing your flowering daylight hours by one hour? Yeah, correct. Uh, um, theoretically, it's supposed to increase. Now, I haven't done any side-by-side -side experiments to totally verify that, but I haven't had any problems using the 11. Uh, 13 either. Uh, I haven't seen any reduction, so yeah. Well. And, and not to mention uh, the savings in electrical cost for an hour and a day of thousand watt lights running uh, over the course of three months. And, and I hear things are coming back from other people, especially a lot of big, you know, big producers, a million watt grows, who are figuring out um, we can dial in the, the plants don't need the intense light for a few hours a day. Uh, like an hour and a half in the early part, an hour and a half in the late part, and then it's, you know, LEDs in the middle. And people, from what I'm reading, again, I don't have first-hand experience in this, but people are saying production is not being diminished at all. It's figuring out that time, which, again, for all of us who are, you know, entering this field, my biggest piece of advice to you is to keep notes, lots and lots of notes on what you're doing, and play around with things, and, and see what happens when you do that. And and noted for future reference. All right, and uh, yeah, we have some new arrivals to the panel, so I'd like to introduce uh, all the way at the end next to DJ, Mr. Mitch Shinasa. He's the uh, founder of Incredible and also the author, let me get this right, of the Cannabis Connoisseur's Handbook. It's aficionados, you were close. Okay. I'm sorry, it's a great little book with a lot of important information in it and uh, fits in your pocket with, and like I said, lots of great information about uh, connoisseurship in general for the smoker and the grower, but give us the title. The Cannabis Aficionado's Handbook, and then of course, also, this guy, the beard on the end, we do the Adam Dunn Show. The Adam Dunn Show, and Adam has, <laughs> yes. We have to manufacture beef between our shows at some point like, rap, like rappers do. And then you can have yeah, a reconciliation. Yeah. We're here for the hangover thing, though. This is officially Adam Dunn Show podcast now. Awesome. Awesome. I think, you know, rising tide lifts all folks. But um, Adam is not only the host of the awesome Adam Dunn Show weekly, every Wednesday, when they're when they in Colorado. So uh, he also has been a part of the marijuana and the hemp world now for decades. He, he went over to Amsterdam years and years ago, in 1989, and uh, started breeding seeds. He developed, uh, well, at first it was CIA, Cannabis in Amsterdam, uh, KGB, Killer Green Buzz, and it was actually No Good Buzz. So it was No Good Buzz in Amsterdam, which has now turned into a real center. <laughs> yeah, it's actually come to fruition. But, uh, he also, uh, that turned into Hempworks, which is a legendary store there in Amsterdam, which is having a closing. 
closing today. Unfortunately. <laughs> so closing today in Amsterdam. Get over there today if you can and get your hemp hood lamb, which is the greatest coat ever with the fake fur and the hemp. But I digress. He's also the uh, founder of THC. So he's won a ton of cups. He's made in some incredible strains that have won contests all over the world for many, many years. Uh, would you mention a few of the names of some of those award-winning strains? Uh, well, actually, in '93 is when I first started bringing out some genetics. And the first four years that I was in Amsterdam, I was really like a kid in a candy store, just trying to figure out what to do. Um, but I was always complaining to everybody. I was like a big whiner, like, ah, that better weed back home, you know? And then, no, it, it must be better because this is, you know, I'm here in the center of it all. But the reality is, over there, it was a lot of good hazes, there was a lot of great strains that uh, people just gravitated towards. And uh, so I got to use my American sort of influence over there. So every time I come back to the States, I see what's happening. My friends are growing sour diesel in 93 or so, you know, okay, that's a new flavor, 93. Took maybe 20 years for everyone to catch up to us, but now that they all have, um, these things are becoming common strains. And, uh, we put out Sage uh, after that. First we put out Bubblegum, then I put out Sage. Um, and I started to notice that, you know, people just like, uh, we all kind of had certain flavors that we were uh, known for, so every breeder has his own style. And that's what you find. It's good to buy a package from everybody, um, you know, because you'll really be surprised. I saw some great stuff this year. We did our um, Adam Dunn Show Invitational, first one this year. So we had about 35 breeders and growers from all over the states, and got to see some awesome genetics. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm here to help you guys out. Awesome, thank you. All right, sorry to interrupt you guys, but I have to uh, pay the bills here. And you've been hearing about this company a lot if you've been listening to the show probably almost every episode, and it's BC Northern Lights. Uh, what they do is pretty amazing. They create these grow boxes that can give you uh, over five harvests a year in a fully automated growing appliance. I know a lot of people have trouble. Uh, they want to start a closet grow. They want to build a cabinet. They want to get started, and then they get bogged down in the minutia and uh, – really just have a lot of trouble just getting out of the starting gate. And I think what these guys do is they provide you with a uh, an express train to Pottsville, so to speak. Uh, they have the roommate. They have the bloom box. They have the producer. All of these are uh, manufactured in Vancouver, Canada, and um, they have everything under control. I mean, odor, uh, CO2 dosing, automated timing for the fans and the filters and the lighting and the watering and pretty much everything you need to take care of is all taken care of. And yes, you know, like I said, they're they're pricey, but within 10 to 12 short weeks, you will have a harvest that can not only provide you with bud, but also hopefully pay back some of the cost of the machine or all of the cost of the machine. So please do yourself a favor, check them out at bcnorthernlights.com or give them a call at 888 888- Two three six one two six six, and get started growing the BC Northern Lights way. So, all right, getting back to cultivation, uh, growing here in Colorado has some very unique uh, um, circumstances that you have to deal with, and I know Mark's been dealing with with uh, high altitude and low humidity, right? 
So can you talk a little bit about the uniqueness? You're at over 9,000 feet, right? 10,600 feet. So you can't grow outdoors, greenhouse or indoor. Um, tell us a little bit about the uniqueness of the altitude and the humidity. Okay, our grows in the state, there's about 50 50 between floor elevations around like 5,500 elevation up to 10,600 in Colorado. So we've got some very high elevation grows, obviously very low humidity. Um, you know, cold's an obvious issue in the mountains. It's cold all the time. The, the warmest day that we see in Alma is 80 degrees. The warmest, so we're not really dealing with major heat issues. You know, uh, cooling issues can be an issue. You know, we do have closed rooms. We do have open rooms. Our open rooms are more problematic than all our closed rooms, of course. Uh, if, if you guys know what an open room is, you've got air intake coming in, and you have air exhausting out of the room. Um, in our closed rooms, we don't have any fresh air coming in from the outside, obviously creating a more controlled environment, um, humidity levels, contamination from the outside, um, problems are not as much of an issue you know, in our, our open systems. Uh, we don't have as, as many issues, but it can get cold. Um, we all know that temperatures drop, humidity levels rise, powdery mildew and molds become an issue. It's great for everybody to acknowledge that. I hope everybody here has seen that once or twice in their life and dealt with it. Um, it can devastate a garden, large or small. The larger the gardens, we see major devastations. And that say the entire state of Colorado, anybody that's saying that their large gardens are flying clean and free of any problems are completely lying to everybody right now. And uh, I noticed that in our microenvironments, our 10 to 20 light rooms, they're perfect. Our 80 to 100 light rooms, never perfect. It's for whatever that's worth. So we, we have rooms broken down for a the, the rooms we like are 10,000 to 20,000 watts. And it seems like everything is a little bit Control. We're in sea of green perpetually in all of our gardens. We harvest daily, every day of the year. Somewhere in the state of Colorado, we've got trim crews trimming. Um, it's, it's a lot to keep up with. Uh, everybody's the patient of the ports, 420, 420, everybody. It's 520 right now. Not yet. What time is it? It's almost 420. I have a question for you. So one of our biggest issues was today was 420, so a lot of semesters and funds in the state of Colorado because of our banking situation are still delivering cash to the Department of Revenue. So outside the ground, we have Department of Revenue issues, but today there's spending owners lined up over here, lined up delivering cash to the Department of Revenue because our banking system is so out of whack right now that that's what we do every month on the 20th. So 420, all these spending owners here are over here at the Department of Revenue with banks full of cash, giving the state of Colorado money. So we can build more school infrastructure for the future of the state. I'm proud of everybody in this industry. Yeah. We've certainly come a long way where we're dealing with the, the taxes on the weed that we grow. That's, that's a trip. That's a good trip. It's the worst part, yeah. Regulations. Um, Mitch, I have a question for you. I have an answer for you then. Okay. So from, from the connoisseur side and the grower side, um, I want you to just talk about growing for connoisseurship. Not for profit, not for anything except great bud, 
what are you know what are the pitfalls? It definitely starts with strain selection. I mean, there are genetics that will yield a lot of weight. It's good enough to sit to bring to market, but that's not necessarily what is really considered at the top level. Uh, very often, you won't find. And there's always a trade-off when people are making those crosses and trying to bring up the yield. It can be done. In some cases, it happens, but more often than not. You take some hit in the terpenes, or you take some hit in, in the resin production, or, or some of the nuance of it that makes a strain really special. Uh, so of course the first thing is strain selection. Then from in there it's that, it's knowing that strain. Working that's not throw it once and like, ah, it didn't turn out the way I wanted, so I'm dropping that one and looking for the next one. I mean, anytime I see someone really nail a strain, it's something they've been doing for a few rounds. They know what it, they've done it once, seen what it was deficient in them when they were coming up on week, you know, five, six. Next time they boost it a little more, they come through a little healthier, maybe they overdid it, so then they pull back the next time. But usually by three, four cycles, people are really getting the plant to give its best and truest expression. The other thing that we found was, I don't want to necessarily pitch one growing method, but the living soil organics tends to, uh, what it comes down to is there's no residual taste from your fertilizers or your flushing agents or whatever else. It's just the flavor of the soil to some extent, but since you're not forcing anything into the plant, it's mostly just the flavor of the plant. Yeah, you can get some sugars in there and you can tweak it out with some other things, but generally speaking, the plant is only plant synthesized compounds, so it's going to be less muddled. And then of course, the most important part is you can do all that right. You can do all that great, and then you can screw up your dry and your cure, and you'll end up with hay. You trim too. I mean, if it doesn't look pretty, or you over do a great job. I saw this in Cali a couple of years ago. Dude did a pretty good job. You know, not world class, but pretty good job. And then he proceeded to throw it all through a trim machine, and then dry it in hanging baskets in a dusty barn. And at the end result, he ended up, he wanted to cash crop, that was his idea, but his, like, not caring, he ended up with pounds that went to market at $400 a pound. And that's how you can turn something pretty good and turn it into garbage. That final drying and curing, controlling the environment, understanding what you're trying to accomplish, that is slowly teasing out the moisture. Rather than trying, you can throw it in a dehydrator and it's going to taste awful, but you want to slowly tease out that moisture, let it balance, let, it, let the total humidity of the jar go up, burp it out, let it go down, let it go up again, burp it out, let it go down. And different strains will have different cure times, like uh, the white, great strain, cure that two, three weeks, doesn't really smell like anything. Cure it out a little longer, six to eight weeks, it starts to develop like this really deep with lime tang to it. It's, it's just not there before then because of the way these compounds develop and break down in sort of tears. Excellent, thank you. Um, I always tell people just always err on the side of caution, particularly with watering and with nutrients that you put into your water, making that the nutrient solution. It's always easier to add more water or more nutrient than it is to take water away if you've overwatered or to take nutrient away if you've overfertilized. So, and overfertilization is, is the death of connoisseur quality product. You have burnt tips at the end of your leaves, you have overfertilized. And overwatering, too. I mean, that's one thing that someone recently told me is like almost try to water it as little as you possibly can and still and to keep it from wilting. You know, that, yeah, Kyle, don't you have sort of a theory about leaf? I just want to say just that it, uh, a point of book reference that's really important for growers to learn is to what point do you take the plant and have it wilt. And the best thing to do is start out with a vegging plant. 
because veggie plants come back very quickly. Even without a veggie plant, go completely wilted, and you water it, and within an hour, it's completely back where it was. So uh, what you want to learn is, is how heavy or light that pot can get, and have that reference point so that you can go through complete wet dry cycles, not only sure that you want to water. You know, the other thing uh, I think Dan might have alluded to was um, an old thing we used to call greenhouse burn. And greenhouse burn is just the slightest little tip burn on your plants. And this may not be the, uh, the optimal result that you want to shoot for all the time, but it is a reference point that you want to familiarize yourself with. So if you're in a greenhouse and you're preparing thousands of plants to go out to sit from the right here at Costco and be sold, you want to make sure that there's pumped up as possible, so they're going to be treated like tech for the next week or so, watered infrequently, they'll live. So they would, the greenhouse guys learn how to feed their plants to a point where they just get a little tiny burn on the tip. And so it's good for you to have that reference point so that you can back down from there. You don't know where it is if you don't find it. So it's the same thing with water. You want to find the limits of what they are so that you can adjust appropriately. It's a bit like when you have a car without a gas gauge and you just say, if I'll throw a gallon in and see how far I go, and then now I know. Now I know when it's in a... Just like that. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen some of those levels too. That when we talk about leaf tip, it's the very tip of the leaf lip. When the serration tips start burning, then you're, right. you're, you're in eight years old. Yeah, and um, interesting about the leaf. And you, had, you were talking about how leaves, when they droop down and then sort of come back up to the light, then you know, you know, you kind of let it go. Well, you know, for me, um, that's what I, I, I use it as a sense to notice the mechanics, and that is um, my, my DNA matrix I formulated basically with a very low end decay. It's virtually not burning, so you can water, feed with every water. And basically, I only rinse once I see that I come in one day, every day my leaves are up like this, and I come in the next day and my leaves are a little bit like this, it's kind of like you're saying, oh, just saying, oh, you know what? I need a rinse. And that's the day you give a rinse with a little bit of tea, a little bit of sign, and then ready to be in the next day. Very strange specific too. Some strains just love that. Like Golden Goat will just shoot straight up. I mean, it looks like uh, you know, full brain when you walk in. So it's a good, it's a good healthy look. Some strains just won't do it. Yeah, some strains, a lot of Afghani strains and stuff, they look more like a melted popsicle or something. <laughs> <laughs> they just got to hang in it. 419. Who knows a lot of the living soil stuff that. Um, I was just talking to DJ about uh, the probiotic farmers alliance and the use of anaerobic microbes in the soil. And that tends to create just a happier microbe. The, the angle of the leaf, I haven't seen any scientific literature on it yet, but happy leaves spread. Happy plants have happy leaves and happy leaves spread. And if you use aloe vera in your foliar spray or in your feet, and you use coconut water, you'll often see, you'll come back and you have two more inner nodes and the leaves are all praying. And uh, it seems to have something to do with how they're like solar panels, adjusting themselves for the light absorption they need, and they just have that, that perfect intuition. That kind of brings us to a subject that you recently wrote about for us in High Times, uh, leaf surface temperature. And how, a lot, well, a lot of people sort of, they have a thermometer on the wall of their grow room, and they think that's the temperature in their room. But the reality is the temperature at their leaf surface could be 10 or 15 degrees hotter. Absolutely. First of all, happy 420, everyone. Yay! Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks a lot for being here at 420, on 420. I know everybody wants to go outside and smoke. 
I wouldn't, won't be offended if you do, but we got some great information too, and I'll definitely go out there. I'm also going to be signing books afterwards at the High Times Products booth that's basically just straight through the doors on the right-hand side, right, right here in the plaza. So um, thanks a lot, you guys, and happy 420. <laughs> it is a celebration, so let's get to Yeah, I, I, I linked up with the LED company. I'm pretty sure they're here, Black Dog LED. And they had taken some far-looking infrared photos of their rooms. And what they proved was that the variations between the air temperature that you see, you're, oh, it's 72 in my room, awesome. That wasn't necessarily the case with the leaf surface. The leaf surface could be 88 or 65, depending on the type of lighting you're using. There are other factors, too. And you'll hear people talk about vapor pressure deficit. And that is the balance of all these things. Leaf surface. <laughs> Leaf surface, humidity, temperature, that, that whole, whole equation is the vapor pressure deficit. But I don't really know enough math to get into that. But your leaf surface, you'll have that different because infrared light, which a lot of our grow lights do produce, it's not strong enough to actually power photosynthesis, but it does penetrate cells. So you have this energy in the plant cell hanging around. And then more shows up, and more shows up, and more shows up. And this energy has to turn into something. It can't just be light in the plant. So indeed, it turns into heat. And so your leaf surface can build up this heat. It's kind of like walking, you know, it's a summer day, the air is nice, but you step on the blacktop and you burn your feet. That's because the blacktop has absorbed a ton of infrared energy because of the color of the asphalt. Versus, versus like a white sidewalk by a pool, nice and cool, same day, same sun. So your leaf surface is going to catch that light and that's going to turn into heat. So a lot of these alternate lighting methods, the ceramic metal halide, the LED, are going to produce a lot less of that or none of that light, depending on how tuned the spectrum is. So the end result is, when you're running your room at your perfect 72, you're really at a perfect leaf surface temperature of 86. So in the summertime, if you're running a lighting system that doesn't have infrared, you can let that room get up there at 84, 85 because your leaf surface temperature will be at 86, and that's what the plant cares about. Yeah, I guess the important tool would be to get yourself one of those little laser monitor, laser temperature things, right? So that you can get some readings throughout the garden. So it's like, it's like a yes and no. Like that's, that's the most reasonable thing for any of us to afford, because those FLIR cameras are like $6,000, $7,000. But what they caution me is you don't want to just take one spot on a leaf, and say that's it. You want to hit it. If you take a leaf, you really want to collect 15 or 20 data points from that leaf and consider the average of that a good indication of your leaf surface temperature. And then you want to do that throughout the canopy. Yeah, if you can, if you can uh, have that 9 degree, 10 degree window right there, start calculating that on a whole year or a large scale grow, that's huge. Like 10 degree difference on any track. Oh, it's huge. Long is huge savings, and also your equipment's going to run a lot faster. You know. And you're going to be, uh, I, I know a lot of growers have been doing it for a long time. We don't necessarily know the term leaf surface temperature, but the first thing they do when they walk in the garden is feel the leaves. They just feel how hot it is, and then they adjust by that. I've never done that. I, tell, I always use the back of my hand. I hold it a little louder, you know? I know you're loud enough. So I'll say you use the back of the hand. And the difference there is that the back of your hand obviously is like red-orange, whereas the leaf is green, so it's a totally different representation of the light that's there. And you're just putting it there for a second. I believe that plant is there. You know? it, it's always just for me been about trying to create as many reference points in my head. It's all about observation, cultivation, 
any good complication for me is about observation and notes, right? Because you can't remember these observations. So the more observations you can get, and the more that you can write it down and have to refer to, result in a future your knowledge. Yeah, to elaborate on that, a good way to take notes is go to um, you know Office Max or one of these places where you pick up a big old calendar. Grab calendars for all your grow rooms, your bedrooms, your flower rooms. Each room should have a number on whatever room that is, and then you keep all your data on that calendar every day of your life for the rest of your life as a grower, and that's your Bible forever. So we literally have calendars dating back for a long time to to troubleshoot our mistakes that we, we all have. You know, I think it's great to be honest in your garden. It's great to be honest about yourself and how you're growing and how you can improve as a grower. Every one of us is trying to grow better. And the best part about taking notes more than anything else is it forces you to pay attention to the details. You don't just, ah, I watered, I'm out of here. You gotta take your notes and you gotta look to take your notes. That's always when you notice, hey, wait a second, there's a little something going on down here. Yeah, and there's always, um, there's always the sophomore slump thing that I see too, where the first time grower takes care with everything and gets it perfect and gets a great crop, and then the second time around they're like, oh, I got this. Depending on the cycle, depending on the time of year, things change. You can always reference the those notes. Spring, spring specifically is different for the time of year. And so then you can go back to those notes and be, okay, this is not the way it is now, and you're just based on that. Yeah, and one of the questions I get all the time is, I know, you know, vaguely, like, the flowering time of this plant, but how do I know two weeks before when to start flushing? I mean, it's such a hard thing to, to gauge, and a lot of times people will end up flushing for five days instead of the 10 or 14 that they should because the, the harvest just crept up on them. They didn't get it, but if you take those notes and you know your strain, you'll know, okay, last time it was right around here, this time I'm gonna do it a couple of days earlier and get a little bit of a better flush. Um, wait, one thing that I get asked a lot also is how do I make my own strain? It's a thing, and it's so much more than just taking male pollen and putting it on a female plant. Um, particularly, a lot of people think, oh, this is great genetics, and this is great genetics, so if I cross them, I'm gonna get something great. Or the name of this plus the name of that makes a cool new funky name. <laughs> I've seen. So I wanna ask DJ to maybe, uh, there's a lot of legendary breeders up here, but I wanna ask DJ to basically take us through the process of breeding a strain and you know what an F1 is, what an S1 is, all of that, you know, kind of chemistry, alchemy stuff, the sure. <laughs> botany stuff. Sure, sure. Well let's let's start at the end. I'm kind of a top-down person. And so let's start with judging herb. And the primary way I judge herb is by the effect of the finished product. That fully matured, harvested, cured bud or the concentrate from it, when I consume it, how does it make me feel? That's number one. That's number one above anything else. What that plant looks like, smells like, what color it is, those are all secondary considerations. You have to go by how it makes you feel. All right, um, given that, the, the, the route I went, um, my P1s were all land races. It was Highland Thai, uh, Highland Oaxacan, Chocolate Thai, and then the Afghan. Um, and it was the crossing between the Afghan or the Indica and the Sativa, which were very different um, strains uh, to make my F1 generation. Now, when you use two very different P1s, 
and your F1s that are all uniform, they're the exact same thing. Um, I, I use the dog breeding example for, uh, if, if you could cross a, uh, a Great Dane and a Chihuahua, you know, again, hopefully the Great Dane is the mother, uh, those would be your very different P1s. Your F1s in the dog world would be something in the middle, like a boxer or a pit bull. They'd all be pretty much the same size and structure, which is what I saw in my F1s. They were all uniform, and they had this complete cacophony of odor. I mean, it was everything. It's like you spilled a can of paint in a hairspray factory with berries and cherries and oranges and gasoline and everything. I mean, it was just everything. Then you take those F1s and cross them, any two, any two F1s, you don't have to do any selection in that uh, point at all. Um, you come to your F2s where you see this great variation. Now in the dog example with the Great Dane and the Chihuahua, um, you would see um, a dog bigger than a Great Dane and smaller than a Chihuahua. It's called transgressive segregation in biology, uh, but in essence that's what I witnessed. So when I get to my F2s and I'm starting to see all of this amazing uh, variation, I will pick, say, a berry mother, a berry flavored leading mother, and a berry flavored leading father, and I'll cross those two and take them out to F3. Um, when I do that, I should be seeing from those seeds at least 50% of that berry quality. Then in my F3s, I'll do the same thing, the most berry mother with the most berry father, um, to get to my F4s, uh, which then will theoretically be 75% showing that uh, trait. Now again, bear in mind that it is the effect of that finished product. So there may be one that doesn't taste as good as the others, but it definitely makes me feel better. That's going to get more of my attention. Or by the same token, if you have a whole bunch that taste exactly the same, but one makes you feel a lot better than the others, you want to go with that one. It's the way they did it in, in the tropics, or, or um, mainly the tropics, where every year it's, they, they grow all these plants, they pretty much fertilize themselves, they're hermaphroditic, um, but what the locals will do is select the best plant. They'll have all the plants that they harvest, and it's like, wow, this one really stands head and shoulders above the rest, use those seeds next year and do that again and again and again and you, you get to where you want to be. But the primary thing again is judge by the effect of the finished product on what you're growing and there's no shortcut for that. That's great, 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 great stuff. I, I want you to expound on um, how you go about deciding that a male is a parent is a berry man. So all this stuff is basically for choosing females. That's easy. We can smoke it, we can judge it. How do you judge your males? Well, okay, there, in a disclaimer here, there is no shortcut to producing the seed, harvesting the seed, curing the seed, and growing it out. Now having said that, when I'm doing an R&D project, I will just kind of select on my own three males. For example, the, the fastest growing one, almost always, there will be a plant that grows twice as fast as the other ones. That's called out immediately. That's a fiber plant. It's making fiber. We're looking to make resin, right? Um, so I will come up with these three males that I think are going to, you know, work the best. Separate, uh, I will uh, pollinate them in a separate space. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
And you can just use a little T5, I mean a two-foot T5, to put your males under in a separate room in a separate box. Um, you can actually produce pollen right there. And I would collect that up from these three separate males, and then I would hand-pollinate uh, branch or several branches on uh, the females in the room, and I would mark the branch with each male I'm using. Then when I grow all those out, I also have, of course, uh, clones of those males um, in the veg state as well. Um, so it's a long process. It's a lengthy process. You still haven't told us how you select those males. By judging the seeds they make. Okay, so I'll have the one female plant who I know her intimately well. She's just been pollinated with three separate males. I'm going to have three separate um, seed lots coming off of that. I will grow those side by side. And in essence, again, there is no shortcut. There are some, you know, Luther Burbank said, select the best, reject all others. And again, when you're paying 10, 20 bucks a seed, it's hard to reject all those others. They're spending. Um, so little tricks like uh, tackiness is, is important. Or resin production. There are males that, you know, put out resin, and he's going to bring potency to the table. Uh, certain specific flavors by rubbing the stem, if you're looking for a berry, or if you're looking for an orange, or something along those lines, well, yeah, that you can identify it that way in the mail. But there is no shortcut to uh, growing those seeds out and, and seeing what they are. But using this method, again, you can test three different males on one female and see how they are reacting. And then you have those backed up as clones. So when you say, ah, number two is the one that really made this wonderful plant with this one, there's your parent. Yes. And, uh, and one thing that you mentioned, which is really important, is that you know uh, a lot of people jump to conclusions when they're doing picking projects. Everybody jumps from the first one they think is the one, and almost 99% of the time, it's not the one. You just really like gotta really, you know, throw a lot out there. That's the whole key the numbers, and that's where we're lucky enough that now in the states we're gonna finally be able to do some proper breeding. Because we've been, even in Holland, where you know everybody has things as an echo, we all had to get underground there too, and our numbers were not nearly what we can do here. Totally. Oh, it's definitely not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but even with, it, with the selection process, it usually finds that the one that either yields the least or the one that you didn't have backed up for whatever reason finds <laughs> up is your favorite. So over the years, I've found that I don't even test the one that, if you don't have it backed up, I don't even want it. Just, just go. Because in my mind, I'll choose that. To me, the takeaway from that is uh, the desirable traits aren't shorter flowering times or you know bigger buds, but effect. Right. So, so much time and energy has been wasted, I feel, on THC percentages. And like DJ was saying, um, I never selected for THC percentage. You know, we, I, I selected for flavor and for, like he was saying, how it made me feel or how it tasted, mostly the taste and the flavor. And then the growth structure would come into play and then the yield, you would hope it was the one that would yield more. But it was never for the THC, that came later. And then even those percentages, I don't, you know, I don't feel like we know the full, all the percentages and everything, what it means completely anyway when there's a psychoactive effect that we're getting from smoking it, that we don't know how to measure every little level. So just to say THC or CBD, and then just base everything on that, I think you're going to miss out on something.
All right, you guys. Sorry to interrupt again, but I know you want to grow pot. That's the only reason you're listening to the the sound of all of us yapping about growing pot. So uh, you have the equipment, you have the know-how, you have everything you need except seeds. And I highly recommend going to Gorilla Seed Bank. That's G-O-R-I-L-L-A-Cannabis-Seeds.co.uk. They are out of the UK and they sell seeds. Pretty much every seed bank you can think of, plus some you've probably never heard of, but uh, all very well vetted. Um, they've got the feminized seeds. They've got the autoflowering seeds. They've got regular seeds from all the companies that you know and respect, plenty of the people who've been on the show. Uh, right now, they have a special on super iced grapefruit. Uh, now, this is a very interesting strain, um, testing at over 22% THC. You can buy individual seeds of this for like 12 13 bucks. You can buy five packs uh, for under $50. And this is a very, very strong, high yielder, definitely a crowd pleaser. So check out Gorilla Seed Bank. Um, yeah, they have that super iced grapefruit. They have a number of other amazing different types of strains. You can look up strains by type, by high THC, by sativa, by indica, by everything. And be sure to follow them on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash gorilla seeds so give them a like send them a tweet tell them free weed sent you shout out to gorilla seed bank and now back to the show yeah which brings us to terpenes which are basically the the <laughs> the compound that uh you know, it combines with THC to make the experiences different um, with different strains. And I wonder if uh, Mitch can kind of elaborate a little bit about terpene preservation and production and, and why they're important. Yeah, as far as how they combine to make the experience different, this is like my new thing since someone's turned, someone turned me on to it. Um, Dave from Green Dot showed me this experiment that everyone can do at home. It's very easy. Uh, you, what you should do is pick a strain that you know the effect of. I know on you. First of all, it's going to be different for everyone. But for me, I know Bubba Kush is a real chill strain. So go ahead and pack yourself a bong with some Bubba Kush, or whatever your known strain is. Take a few rips and make sure that it is what you expect it to be, you know. And then take some high-quality essential oil. I was using the doTERRA brand, but it doesn't really matter. And if you have something that's really like cow stock sedative, you go ahead and put like a drop, one drop, of lime essential oil in your water. And all that's doing is adding the lime terpenes, the limonenes, uh, various compounds, to the water mix. Uh, then you take this bomb rib, same bowl. You haven't even changed the herb in there. You'll notice an entirely different effect. I was like pacing around the room, like <laughs> freaking out. Super the other end of the spectrum just from adding this drop of lime. So that proves this long-held theory of the entourage effect, which is that there's something about how our body responds to this class of compounds that we recognize as smell, but they don't inherently have any smell. That's just how our brain makes that appear. Um, that and the endocannabinoid system that modulates how the cannabinoids pass through our body have some interaction that is poorly understood at best. And to go back to what Adam was saying about the New York laws, like you're supposed to list every active compound in we don't know every active. We know there's 67 cannabinoids and we can test for maybe eight of them. You know, and we know there's, at last count, I had something like 650 different known terpenes in cannabis, and the best lab I've seen can test for like 35 of them. So 
to even try to explain the mechanism, we can't. But it's legit, and that's why herb that smells better affects you more. And it, it is like a total quality and sort of a holistic sense. Uh, so as far as preserving the terpenes, obviously not letting it sit out, not letting the terpenes degrade. Uh, heat, light, anything like that will cause the degradation of terpenes. Another interesting thing I just learned is that old wheat jar smell. We all know it. You have that jar from last year's cannabis cup. You open it up, it's got that like kind of spicy sort of funk to it. And no matter what strain it was, it smells like that at the end. And what that is is actually the smell of the waxes when they degrade. And all plants have the same, all cannabis plants have the same types of waxes, so they all end up smelling like that. What's the way people can avoid that? I mean, that storing in uh, those darker glass jars, the violet glass, I think it's called iron glass, it's from Germany, that will help a lot of the uh, breakdown that happens because of light. Store your herb in the freezer if you're going to keep it a long time, because the heat will progressively not only change your cannabinoids, but also your terpenes. All right, um, I'm going to open up uh, to uh, one more thing. One more thing about that entourage effect with terpenes. It's um, similar to where, like, you know, you hear a song and it reminds you of being back in junior high or something, and you don't know why that happens. I think, I, or I don't think, I had a friend about uh, six months ago. He was here. He hasn't smoked in five, six years. He doesn't smoke. It's not good for him. He shouldn't smoke. But he's totally down with it. And we were smoking pure terpenes with no THC. Tony made them, and, and we were doing it. Off dabbing it and he was tripping out because there was no THC in it so he was really intrigued because it smelled so great and everybody was enjoying themselves so he's like I'll take it you know give me a hit I'm not gonna get high so we did because he's a grown-ass man and he got out of his mind not out of his mind bad but I mean he was definitely high and he, then he was asking are you sure are you sure and you know Tony's telling us there's no THC in there bro it's, it's all good you're fine but he was Noticeably stone. So there's definitely something to this. Yeah, right. It's very interesting how terpenes interact with the other cannabinoids to create the effects that make different strains feel differently. I mean, and even when you harvest, it can change the effect. Obviously, if you harvest later, you're going to have a more narcotic stone or stone effect. And if you harvest a little early, it'll be a little racier. I mean, and that's the same thing. I just want to say, make sure you finish curing your weed before you freeze it. Yeah, you cure your weed in the freezer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to open up to questions from the crowd if you guys have any questions. Um, this gentleman. Uh, yes, I have a uh, small closet and upstairs room. One half of it uh, does, is not uh, insulated. The other half does have cool air in it. Uh, using a thousand watt light. And I got a fan pulling air through the light, a vent blowing air in the room, and a big ass exhaust fan pulling air out of the room, and I still have a problem with heat. Uh, is there any other LED you suggest that? I heard somebody saying about LED park through the day and then back to your regular light at night. I don't know, it just sounds like you're gonna have to get creative. It sounds like you're trying to get by without adding any cooling. And, um, when you have an HID, uh, it's going to generate heat that you're going to need to offset with some cooling. Uh, circulation just typically is not going to be enough. Uh, unless it's wintertime, the idea that you're drawing in is 20 degrees or 30 degrees. Um, that would offset the 1500 degrees coming off of your, your HID light. Um, uh, you're just going to have to get creative. So, air conditioning, 
I do have air conditioning. Like I said, I've got a, a vent blowing into the room. Uh, the only way I can control the heat is actually to keep the door open. Well, if the cool air is coming into the room, maybe your exhaust is really close to where the cool air is coming in, and you're just pulling that cool air right out. Another thing I can use, you put your intake in a different place on the other side of your room, low, and you put your exhaust high on the opposite side of the room. You can play with your different venting options, because it's like, if you're right now running closed through your light and out, right, you could open one end, so blowing cold in the room, and that's only leaving the room at the pace that it's going out through your light, so that cold room air is going through the bulb. Playing with whether you're running it through your light, through your room, those sorts of things. I mean, it'll take a night in there with a thermometer, and you'll you'll figure out the way you're going to get your best efficiency. And then the weather will change. We'll screw you all up. Thank you. I'm an outside grower. I'm wondering, in the fall, when I got off over and grab home, I think off my day leave, and I get any better sheets like that, or should he pitch off shade leaves? Yeah, I don't have a problem with taking off shade leaves. Uh, and a side note, interesting side note, the big shade leaves, if you take them off early while they're still green, keep the stem on them, you can juice those, like wheatgrass juice. And it's been having some really great uh, healing properties. I, I've never had a problem uh, with, with pulling them out, especially if they're starting to yellow a little bit. They're not doing their, their job, and you may as well let that light go through to the uh, leaves that still have a lot of chlorophyll in them, for sure. Yeah, it's just about carefully selecting which ones you pull off, too. And, and like you said, the yellow ones are the first ones to go. And that's why the, yeah, I say this a lot, but the sticky traps in your room are yellow because the bugs are attracted to that color because it's the color of decaying plant or a diseased plant. So. They're tiny little bugs, so they don't really have much of a brain. They just see yellow and go to it, and then they stick to it. And the reason is that color to them means I can attack here, you know, and I can set up a foothold to attack other parts of this grow room. Pest control, spider mites. What's the what's the best way to get rid of them, and what's the right way to get rid of them? You're not going to like my answer. I moved to a high desert. <laughs> Move to the high desert. There's ways you can bring in cold air that's, you know. Don't take any clones from friends. Don't, yes, don't take quarantine clones when you get them for sure. Uh, higher elevation is also a great way to fight spider mites. Just move higher. <laughs> Let's get one realistic. Uh... <laughs> you know, I've always said there's all kinds of different, you know, uh, pesticides that you can fight with. There's also kind of all kinds of. Uh, Poisons that you hear about people using. I think there's a few that you use in the state of Colorado that are being under, that are under investigation for using some poisonous materials on the plants. They're actually quarantined thousands of plants right now in the state of Colorado that are being investigated for that. So, one way to emerge in the situation is you literally have to get your hands on these plants and remove everything. You've got you to get them to business. I don't have pesticides, spraying, whatever you choose. There's lots of different products out there. I'm not going to recommend one. But you gotta outrun your garden, you gotta get ahead of spider mites. You gotta eradicate the whole situation and then not start over completely. I watch a lot of guys fight this perpetual year after year after year, it seems to be the same character as getting spider mites. There's a reason for that. I mean, they don't want to start over, they're too lazy to just break the garden down, clean up, start from scratch, eradicate the situation, and get going again. Sometimes you gotta take a break to get rid of the problems. Prevention. And uh, yeah, Adam, Adam, you were growing 
great Spider-Man Sam fan for years. So you probably got it. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, you know it. You know it. Uh, actually, California is known for probably the most ferocious uh, Spider-Man on the planet right now. Um, but in general, you want to, the, main, the, the key of fighting any of these things is to alternate between things. You don't want to just stick with one. I think you're going to get it on a one silver bullet. It never happens. And you want to work between mechanical situations and just environmental as, the, as your, probably your number one way to do it, because that's going to obviously have no residual effect. Use any kind of pesticides, even if it's pyrithium, I mean, that's like last ditch effort stuff, because you can make their life miserable. And if you do, you just think, basically it's like anything, you got to think like that bug, you know, you got to think what, what would make their life miserable, you know, so when you're spraying them with water every night, just water and stuff, it's like, that's enough though, that's enough that I was, every time I wanted to go to chill out, somebody's spraying me with water, it's me off, so they, you know, you just kind of treat them uh, literally like, you know, an enemy 24-7 too, because you got to remember, if you go to sleep, they just keep rolling on and on, and it depends on, like a red spider, spider mite, no big deal these days. It's the russet mites and those kind of things, those are the ones that you really got to be careful, because most people can't identify when they see, like, if you see webs, you know, you know what I mean? That's like, hey, what are these web things? You know, it's like, it's down to that point where you're, you're, they're actually, they're hanging on the tip of that leaf, and they're, they're just trying to figure out a way to get to the next plant catch a little wind and then they fly over to the next plant. So I mean, that's like they're on their, your plant's on its way out at that point. And the other thing with all the pests, whether you're talking the spider mites or, or broad mites or broad mites or the new one, rusted mites were last year's uh, flavor of the month. But it's like, you gotta know their reproduction cycle. Your goal is to interrupt, because some, you're, you're gonna vary your methods. Some methods will kill the juvenile, some methods will kill the eggs, some methods will kill the live insect. And if you kill all the live insects, but there's a bunch of great eggs there, guess what? Next week, they're back. And now they're building a tolerance to what you've been treating them with. So it's about understanding the reproduction cycles, interrupting the reproduction, killing the live ones, don't let the eggs hatch, kill any ones that do hatch, don't let them lay eggs, so long and short. Also, boosting your plant's uh, systemic uh, immune system by using uh, probiotic and organic methods, the plant will be a healthier plant. And just like Adam was saying and Danny was saying, folks want to be someplace where it's easy bread. They're not trying to show up and shoot roots, sticks, uh, cell walls, and then encounter terpenes that are actually themselves pesticides that the plants really produce. So, uh, you know, a healthy plant is the best way to, to hold off the invasion. Great level. Definitely, uh, you definitely know silver bullet. You want a two or three pronged attack. And just one good, one tip that nobody else mentioned is that uh, for every degree over 80 degrees that your garden is, um, spider mites breeding increases by about 10%. So uh, one way to get really uncomfortable, and when you're in this position and you don't really know how to get out of it, is just make your room as cold as possible, and it'll help you come to fruition without breeding billions more. And one, one little fact that I know about spider mites is that a pregnant female can stay dormant for two months. They hate cold too, below 55 degrees of cold. Yeah, it slows them down, but you have to be consistent. So, I mean, that's integrated pest management sounds like something crazy, but all it means is diff use different methods. And if that means um, employing predator mites against them one at one point and then neem oil at another point, although neem is kind of frowned upon because now that you make people are making concentrates, you can kind of it's a little late in the game, you can taste that meme in there and it really ruins a lot of the flavor, but it just means use different methods and, and be vigilant and diligent in your efforts. Uh, this gentleman had a question. 
guys are happy in terms of uh, winterizing your seeds? Winterizing your seeds to uh, affect the melon juice development. Uh, I freeze all my seeds and I have a very high female rate. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I really don't know about the male female ratio, but I do know that indica seeds in particular, kind of like apple seeds, I found. I get a much higher sprout rate when I freeze them. Um, that's that, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, again, keep notes on what you're doing. That'd be an interesting paper to publish. So, and how long can you freeze seeds for? Forever. Forever. But just don't fall them. You don't want to fall them a bunch of times. You fall them, freeze them, fall them, freeze them. You're gonna disrupt the germ. I don't know if this is anecdotal or not, but I've always been under the assumption that when you are sprouting seeds. Um, they're all asexual in the beginning, they can all be either male or female, and that uh, during the germination and sprouting, they prefer higher temperatures. So low temperatures are going to give you more males, and if you keep it up in the higher 80s, closer to 90, you're actually doing that, you can't more female. I like to make analogies all the time. It's a little bit also. <laughs> during wartime, uh, because of the stress of mothers and stuff, uh, they ended up with more females than males because they know that I can get the species going. So it's kind of similar in the sense of the survival technique of the plants. They understand, okay, we need to make this happen. It's a little bit opposite, though, because they don't want to get out and pollinate a shitload of things. All right, uh, question over here. Uh, yeah, my question is uh, really speaking to a point that PJ Short made earlier about the uh, spectrum uh, blue versus yellow and uh, the flavor content. The question is really when adding that blue, is spectrum very important? Such as, do I need some, I mean, uh, not spectrum, intensity? Like, should I go with something like a, uh, a metal halide, or could I do something like fluorescence for that blue? The more light, the merrier. Again, that's the plant's food. Um, again, that, that's something that needs to be uh, experimented with and looked at. I will say this, that some of the finest indoor smoke I'm smoking is coming from LEDs. Um, I, I had given to me about five years ago when LED technology was still kind of low. Um, the yields weren't that great in bud. They were doing great in veg. But this person had given me some of my F4 blueberry mother, who I know intimately well, grown entirely under LEDs. And it was dark, dark green, very dark green. When I looked at it, I almost could taste the chlorophyll it seemed. But when I took the ball grip of it, I was very impressed. It was the most blueberry light from indoor. Now, outdoor is another story. Uh, but I was very impressed with the what the LEDs were producing. Um, and again, uh, that blue metal highlight just towards the end, I definitely find bringing out the sweetness or if you want that sour, diesel-y thing, increase the, um, the sodiums. Uh, we just noticed, uh, we just had the, uh, at our uh, award ceremony, the winner was grown under a 315 watts metal And this is all blind tasting amongst the best of the best, and they chose that for flavor. And what we've noticed is it definitely brings up the terpene profile on plants, and it visually brings up the uh, resin content also. So, uh, and that's in the ceramic metal highlight, just, just 100%. No, no other advice. Yeah, I gotta say that over the years I've been uh, realizing that my old adage of keeping the light as close to the plant as you can without burning may not be the best way to go. And may give you the biggest yield and the biggest bud, but it's not gonna give you the most quality one. So um, 
Now I'm finding that keeping the lights uh, much farther away from the flowers is definitely the way to produce the, high, the highest content, content oils, essential oils. Now, we'll stress that that's during flowering, but during veg, you still want to sort of keep them short, stocky, and keep the light at a lower level. Absolutely, because the farther away, the more stretching, the more internal spacing you're going to have. But because there's no essential oils. Uh, during veg, you're not producing essential oils, and the closed light is essentially um, heating up those trichomes and burning off those essential oils. Right, so don't let a plant veg up to a, a light that's secure at the top of a room or a closet. Lower the light and raise that light during the vegging time. And then, like Kyle said, you can have your flowering lights uh, a bit further away than you would normally choose. I used to think 12 to 18 inches was a triumph, that I really had control of my environment, that I could keep my lights so close. But going back to what you were saying earlier about leaf temperature, I knew nothing temperature. All I knew was I had thermometers on the wall, and I had thermometers hanging from the leaf to floor, and I had all these things going up, and essentially I was making the plant uncomfortable by making it too hot. And I just wanted to follow up on one of your points. On, on the one hand, the different spectrums can increase turkey production, and then on the other hand, if the light is too strong, as Danny said, it'll actually evaporate a lot of a lot of the terpenes we really love, like the super lemony, tangy, super cushy, are really volatile. And if the temperature gets too hot, even at normal this room temperature, they're evaporating. When it gets real hot, they just fly off that plant. They're not coming back. All right, a question over here. Question, guys. Um, have you guys had much experience um, basically uh, growing with the new cluster LEDs? And if so, how do they compare to the old single uh, light LEDs? I don't have any personal experience. I can't say from the, the research I've seen. Um, it has more to do with the, the, the how tuned the spectrum is and how many spectrums you have in there. The best performing ones I think I saw at six different diodes arranged in a pretty steady grid. It was still drawing quite a lot of power. It was something like 700 watts compa to compare to 1,000 watts of light intensity. But again, the results come through in the quality. You know, the yield is perhaps comparable and the quality is better. Um, as far as the clusters, you know, there's so many different brands of LEDs. A lot of them just are repackaging from the same manufacturers in China. So if it looks the same, it doesn't matter what the name is, it probably is the same. So you really want to ask, the things to ask your LED manufacturer are, what, how many colors are in the spectrum, how many diodes they have, and how, many, how much power it's, it's putting out. And if it's the same as everyone else is telling you, then there's nothing special there. All right, question? All right. Yes, I'd like to know what is the best way to store pollen. Is it better to freeze it, or is it better to keep it in a cool, dry spot? Uh, vacuum sealed in the freezer. Vacuum sealed in the freezer. You can cut it with flour, 100 to 1. Um, put it into little flaps, if you like, so you have little individual use packets. But then vacuum seal it fresh. It has to be done fresh and put in the freezer. And you can only thaw it once. That's why I do a bunch of little pocket, uh, packets and then use those in the future. There's some pollen that just naturally stays viable. I don't know why. Some people have pollen that's years old and still use it. Generally, it's two weeks and it's, it's done. Good question. Good question. It's from other people. 
Yeah, yeah, could be. Um, but that's the vacuum sealing in the freezer is the way I know. Colloidal silver to what? Reverse a male or to reverse a female? To reverse a female. If you don't have pollen, you have phenomenal Right, right. He's talking about self and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't do that. I, I have too many things to work with myself. I'm not interested in feminized seeds. Whenever I sample herb that has been self, it's always like one rung lower in quality than the original non feminized that it came from. So it, it doesn't interest me. Um, but yeah, as far as storing pollen, it's back and sealed in the freezer. I, I used to think that same thing, but over the years we've been producing lots and lots of feminine seeds and selling lots, and so the results have been coming back, and we've been able to give many people in many parts of the planet the same strain. And what DJ just described, I've found the exact opposite, where, for example, the kosher fish, it was just a clone. I stopped it, put the seeds out for everybody, it's just self seeds, and I've seen better koshers with those seeds, more vigorous, bigger, stronger, more kosher smell. So I think just with the volume, when you do it, with the amount that, that you're able to select from, then you're gonna find those those anomalies. So for me, that, that, that I like that. What I'm talking about is the effect of the finished product. I have not seen a feminized version that has been, you could be more potent, but then again, so is bad dog wine. You know, um, I prefer a fine for low myself. But I also, not just the strength of it, you know, it comes down to terpenes and flavor like we were talking earlier. So that comes through before you're even smoking it. As you're growing it and you're doing a selection, or going to your friend's property that has a hundred of those kosher's outside, and you realize, holy shit, that one's much more than the kosher. So, and then the effect and everything comes out. Everybody has their process. Uh, question here. Yeah, like I said, I can't, I can't do the math on it myself. I, I understand it sort of, I think everyone has like intuition. And to go back to what Kyle was talking about, it's like, you know, your body is just this, this array of sensors that all feed through your brain to give you information. And vapor pressure defer deferential is a way of represent modeling that mathematically, but I mean, that's, that's what makes a great grower at the end of the day. These guys walk in the room and they can feel it and they can sort of see it in the plants. And, you don't develop the intuition. You are, in the end, calculating that. Does the environment feel right? You know what I mean? They're not necessarily sitting down with graphs. Um, I don't know anyone who currently does that outside uh, some, some old-timers who really like to do the theoretical work. But as far as do you have to do it, do you have to sit there with a graphic calculator and do the trigonometry and stuff and really calculate this stuff? You don't. You know, it's, it's something that most people can't, can't even handle the map on, and yet very nervous getting around. All right, you guys, awesome. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the panel. Um, sorry about the audio as well, of course, but I uh, hope you learned something there. And I know there was some interesting discussions going on 
at the panel. So certainly, yeah. Um, yeah also, you you haven't lived with... until you've attended one of these seminars. So please do that in San Francisco. Yeah, cannabiscup.com for tickets. Um, check out the new issue, August issue of High Times Magazine. Uh, we should mention raw paper since we always wrap it up with raw. Got to wrap it up with raw. Yeah, man, and uh, give us good reviews on SoundCloud and iTunes and and wherever, Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to us. Um, big us up. Big us up and let us know you bigged us up and we'll follow you or, or tweet you or Insta, re-Instagram you. Yeah. Whatever, we'll, whatever we'll it is show that up at your house, do. man. Yeah, whatever yeah. it is that people do out there we'll in do it. social media land, we, are gonna, we will do it for you. We're so hip. Have <laughs> you noticed? Uh, all right. Well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be back actually with like a real free weed, like an in-studio free weed. So yeah. keep those questions for uh, for Dan. Those grow questions coming. Yes. So reach out freeweed at hightimes.com. Also, you can get us on Twitter. Yep. He is at Danny Danko. I am at Mike Hughes underscore. So definitely uh, stay in touch with us that way. Yeah, absolutely. And here's a special uh, treat for anyone who's still listening. Um, if you are at the San Francisco Cup, uh, I'm going to have free weed stickers on me. If you just come up and uh, mention the sticker, I'll give you a free, free weed sticker. Nice. <laughs> a free, free weed sticker. That's good. That's free. a good deal. Um, and I'll have those <laughs> with me in my pocket. Uh, only if you mention the podcast, I will give you a sticker. So see you guys in San Fran and uh, stick around uh, for the next episode later in the future. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, put it in the books. Oh, wait. Go back and, yeah. like, tease it a little? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess that's episode number 82 of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Dinko, and you can put it in the books. <laughs> <laughs> that's that one. Is that you teasing it a little? <laughs> Why don't uh, we try that again? Yeah.